Yo, did you guys see fucking uh, that neoliberal, empty-ass piece of shit, uh, fucking Beto O'Rourke? He started his campaign with this rally in El Paso and got all these fucking, like, thousands of people together to, you know, cheer him on like he's some sort of fucking golden god. Oh, El Paso. You mean the city that he wanted to gentrify the fuck out of? And, uh, oh, I'm Wait, sorry. hold on a second, because I saw signs at that rally that said... Beto is Christ. Literally, people have so. No. So, what is there? What's your critique? Are you saying he's not Christ? What did oh he god. do in El Paso? Oh my god! Well, there was this re- this this quote unquote urban renewal plan, mm. right? Um, his uh, father in law was a big wealthy developer, and he had this like development group with uh, cool. these other developers and business business people, you know, who wanted to renew the downtown, and they hired this uh, marketing firm actually to present it. To the city council. And this was and while Beto was in office. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they had some slides of the kinds of people that they <laughs> did not want to live in El Paso oh, yeah. and the kinds that they did. And like, I'm not making this up. I'm looking <laughs> at it right now. Tell there, us. Tell there us. is a picture it. of an old Mexican man in some kind of uh, cowboy hat. And it says... Old cowboy, male, 50 to 60 years old, gritty, oh, which like, mm, uh, I guess that might have prefigured mean, our mean, new mascot. Uh, or they mean dusky. Yeah, perhaps. Dirty, oh. lazy, oh. speak Spanish, oh. and uneducated. Okay. Fuck. And then the New West. Okay. It actually says old, it's like old cowboy versus New West. Oh. And the New West, I'm not... Beto, making this Beto's up. New West. There yes. is a picture of Matthew McConaughey <laughs> and a picture of Penelope Cruz. And it says male slash female. So I guess, you know, the Old West is just a cisgender male and the New West is like some sort of um, non-binary Borg of Matthew McConaughey were, and Penelope Cruz. There were no Mexican women. It was just old, gritty Mexican men in the yeah, neighborhood they, before. They reproduce asexually, I guess. Um, 30 to 40 years old. Okay. None of your old shit. The beta Uh, demographic. They're educated, entrepreneurial, Mm. bilingual, family. All right. These people have (laughs) families, unlike the old Mexican man. And this is the best one. Enjoys entertainment. Oh my god! <laughs> like, wow, where where are we going to go to find some people who enjoy entertainment? And this guy is considered one of the fucking front runners for this race. Oh my god, he's, he's one of the woke runners, dude. Babe. And, and is it? He's the uh, yeah. He's woke as fuck. Uh, isn't? Didn't also to his father, who's also rich, like literally name him Beto. Uh, which sounds Latino because he wanted him to run for office someday. Did he's stealing Mexican valor? Oh, like my God. literally, Fuck this guy. it reminds me of um, that that episode of The Simpsons when they're doing that like downtown renewal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And they have that presentation where they replace like shitty buildings with new ones, and then they replace a homeless man with like a fire hydrant <laughs> or a, a mailbox. I think a mailbox. Whatever. You get the idea. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Well, I, I'm just fucking mad right now. I'm really fucking mad. I, I, I'm really mad. Well, Sean, I know you're upset about Beta O'Rourke, but uh, why are you standing I just, on... I can't fucking take it. Why, why are you standing on Sam's desk? I, I, I can't fucking Babe, take it. Babe, Sam is not going to be happy when he comes in tomorrow and sees your fucking footprints uh, on his desk. Listen, 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 listen. I'm on Sam's mic now. I don't give a fuck, all right? Can you guys just give me a beat? <sighs> there we go. A blast from the past. Oh, yeah, this is Fugazi. 
Wow, you, did you guys know about uh, Beto O'Rourke saying that uh, he wanted to create a Fugazi capitalist economy based on do-it-yourself entrepreneurialism and punk rock ethics? This is very triggering for me. Oh, how do you think I feel? Uh, let me let me just speak on it with my with my my words. With your voice. Let's do it. Please. I will do. I am a Gen X boy. I skate, I skate, I skate, I skate. My fans have water on the brain. Everybody voting! Everybody voting! Everybody voting! 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 Please don't ask what I believe. Get in the voting booth to the news. It's not the bad part. Socialism's bad. I won't live by it. Gentrifying all the town. Mexicans are going down. Tell me why. Cause I'm a rich asshole. Come on, a victim. Come on, a victim. <laughs> he would do that fucking Sorry. I'm bad. I love all that breaks. I post hardcore, man. I tell you, this really brings me back. One of the first bass lines I learned, actually, when I started playing. But uh, yeah, back, back to beta. Well, Ted Cruz ate my lunch, Whoa. but I'm planning a big surprise. I'm, I'm going to fight for what my donors need. And I'll probably make the same mistakes. Because I know. Because I'm just a neoliberal flake. And markets. Markets are the key. I'm in the 1%. I don't want to lose. Want to be in it. I'm a shitty dad. I never see my kids. Watch out if you're poor or brown. <laughs> Medicare's going down. Tell me why. Cause I'm a rich asshole. Just vote and shut up. Get in the voting booth. <laughs> oh, Beto. Tell me more about how you're going to privatize Social Security. <laughs> My calves are cramping. Oh, yeah. You love those tax credits. Means-tested, carbon-cap-apt-based tax credits. Fuck yeah. Climbing on a restaurant table. Whoa-oh. Even though it's really weird. Whoa-oh. Standing on a million things. Whoa-oh. Standing for zero things. Tell me why. Cause I think I'm Obama. Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are here with a guest today. Her name is Rona Lormer. She's a writer and a Paris resident of over three years. Um, we're going to talk about the Gilets Jaunes. Hello, Rona. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks oh, it's our in. pleasure. So it's my understanding that uh, you and Andy know each other from a while back. You want to explain a little bit? Like, wh- where'd, where'd you find her, Andy? Did you, was it a mapache thing? Were you dumpster diving together or something? Or? It was close. Uh, <laughs> it was at a squat in London, but a, not exactly a squat. It was like the, an occupied... It was um, a student occupation. It was an occupied uh, Asian Studies Museum or That's something right. at UCL. Hmm. That belonged to SOAS who wanted uh-huh. to make it like a fancy private office for the dean of something. So we occupied it. But uh, it was like a it was like a five story building that was, you know, really fancy and um kind of Georgian building that 
Virginia Woolf had once lived in or something. Um, is that the building that has Jeremy Bentham's mummified corpse no, in it? No, that's actually in <laughs> that's actually in UCL. That's like but you know You gotta occupy that building. Hell yeah. Uh but yeah, I, I guess we had a little bit of a dispute because you were wearing a fur coat and I said in my day we would you, you could not wear a fur coat to a, a radical occupation. And no, I was wearing a fur coat because my friend uh, who was unemployed at the time had spent all her unemployment benefit on a fur coat because mm. she was too cold. <laughs> and so she came in and then all these people who were actually really posh got really kind of angry with her and said that, you know, uh, this was terrible and she was making them feel really unsafe. And so the next day I came in with, with a fur coat as well. And we were like, you know, quite, you know, probably quite wrong, but we were saying, you know, get a total critique and, and stop just treating us like coat hangers. <sighs> Mm. And then, um, yeah, and then Andy was like, well, you know, maybe they have a point and you do look kind of bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wait, you're actually convinced by these like really posh people who are dressing in like Victorian rags to try and look proletarian, <laughs> like actually. So what I what I recall, my argument was like, you know, I'm not mad that you're wearing a fur coat. But I just have this nostalgia for a time when anarcho-punks d- dominated <laughs> the, the scene, which obviously had its problems, too. And, you know, people were very upset about, you know, things like fur. Well, I was going <laughs> to actually ask, like, with the fur thing, I didn't know if this was going to go in the class uh, direction or if it was going to go in, like, a PETA, you know, fur animal rights, animal rights uh, direction. Because, yeah, as a 90s punk and hardcore kid, too, that was... Uh, there were so many pamphlets about fur. Right. Well, why, why is it an either or? You know, can't animals be our class comrades, babe? You'd have to talk to comrade communicator about that. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I, I, I don't have a very, uh, to this day, very coherent opinion about these things. <laughs> I just felt like somebody needed to say the asshole opinion. But about that's fur. so but, French. But, but, but Andy, though, like Trotskyist sects and other sects have broken up over so many things. Wouldn't it be beautiful if you created your own sect that was just like bizarrely pro fur? And like split away from like the bunch of the left that was just like that's what we did. You did, furries, yeah, <laughs> cool, awesome. What's it called? Like no, the, no, uh, I'm kidding. International we didn't really... Workers Fur Alliance for the Fourth. They politicized the furries. <laughs> no, oh, no. no, I mean, I just think we were, you know, just saying, you know, probably wrongly that it didn't particularly matter, and we we're probably trying to offend a bunch of people. And um, but it was just a kind of it was what in the context. Shoes made of. <laughs> yeah, my shoes are made of leather. Ooh. Well, we are luxury communists around here. So, I mean, animal rights aside, it's not that we think nobody should wear fur. It's that everyone should have no. a chance. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wait. I you mean. You just lost it, Andy. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jamie's, animal rights. Jamie's calling like, for, I guess like, that's mapache, a bad example. mapache holocaust. That is, that is so French, though. <laughs> like, a friend of ours was actually complaining about the aesthetics of the gilets jaunes. He was like, well, you know, the gilets jaunes cool and all, but those yellow vests are really no match for what they would wear in like May 68, you know, like the berets That's, and stuff. Why would there be like, guys with Beatles haircuts and fucking like wearing like, uh, I don't know, velvet suits, throwing uh, paving stones at the cop and cops in 2018? I don't know. Ask your friend. Okay. But, I mean, people can have whatever under their gilet jaune. I don't know if, you know, you can have loads of really cool Adidas new stuff or you could be dressed really badly. I mean, I think people, I think people look good. Uh, but speaking of uh, the UK. Oh, yeah. Um, 
before we get started on this uh, French Gilets Jaunes stuff, you know, I was a little concerned uh, when our episode dropped on Wednesday because it looked like things, you know, events might have overtaken our analysis. But I'd like to give a special thanks to uh, Teresa May, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, of course, Jason, Jacob uh, Rees-Mogg, and uh, the rest of the <laughs> pedo-syphilitic uh, Tory scum and uh, their provo-fascist partners in the DUP because their utter venality... Provo, like uh, like the the, the death squads uh, in North uh, Northern Ireland, the fucking Provo. Oh, okay, I thought you were trying to say proto fascist. No, Provo fascist. Okay, I made that clearly up. Clearly, I just didn't. Uh, I'm not on your level. Continue. That's fine, but no, but due to their utter venality and the narcissism and the ineptitude in the Tory party, um, you know, our last episode episode could have become completely irrelevant uh, if they had solved the Brexit debacle, but they didn't. They have continued the clusterfuck of Brexit. There's still no deal. It looks like uh, Mad Max Brexit uh, is more likely by the day. So just special thanks to all those assholes for validating the core thesis of our last episode about political contradictions and economic crisis. Thank you. Yeah, check it out if you haven't yet, folks. I, I, think, I think it's pretty good. I'm a little bit biased, but okay. So the topic of today is, of course, the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest Uprising in France that has been going on for many months at this point in time, uh, but I feel like has been pretty undercovered in the U.S. media. So um, Rona wrote a very good article for Commune Magazine called The Yellow Vest Diaries that we all found very informative, very instructive. So... Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it now and really get into it. So and and, and before we do that, just uh, as always, shout out to Commune Mag mm-hmm. for uh, having people like Rona and other uh, great writers out there giving you the perspectives you don't get anywhere else. So if mm-hmm. you have not yet subscribed to Commune Mag, do so ASAP. Dead ass. So Rona, um, I want to start by giving a little bit of context for these protests. Because I feel like a lot of Americans are kind of confused. They're like, oh, what? They, they're they like anti-environmentalists. They're against carbon tax. Like uh, Americans tend to think the French have it pretty good in general over there with the, with the welfare state and whatnot. So they must be aggrieved for illegitimate reasons like maybe racism or xenophobia. Um, or maybe they're just like spoiled little babies who don't want to pay taxes and protest about every little thing that happens. So let's... Let's get into some context. What's going on there? Um, well, these protests started in November 2018. Um, and the trigger for them was that Macron announced that he would raise um, the gas tax. So something like 60%, I think, of, of what people pay on petrol is already taxes. And so um, people were angry. And so they they had a first protest where they went out and roundabouts and blocked them. And then by the time it was the second protest, it had turned into uh, riots in in urban centers like Paris or Toulouse. And um, meanwhile, people continued to block roundabouts. And so, um, yeah, people might think that French people have it pretty good. Really, the situation, I think, is, I mean, to summarize it a bit crudely, is that um, the austerity measures which have been hitting different parts of Europe since the 2008 crash are finally kind of coming to France and they were already you know they've already been coming for quite a while there's there was the 
the work law, which had also had a social movement against it in 2016. Oh, can you summarize what the work law is? Because I've, I've heard it referenced a lot in reference to this. Uh, well, the work law, um, Francois Hollande, who was supposed to be like a socialist president, passed a bunch of labor reforms, uh, which would in they there's lots of things that are super complicated but they would basically like weaken um the position of the the unions and strengthen the union of bosses i remember uh when that was happening uh in the media over here they had all these pictures of the actual book of all the labor laws and it's like 300 pages and they're like of course they have to get rid of these regulations the french workers have too many protections you have to get rid of them but i guess the french didn't feel that way uh no and uh, like so if you think about it it's like th these austerity pro programs have hit loads of other bits of europe like i'm from the uk so i went through all the you know the university fees raising and cutting the health services and stuff like that but i think that in france you know there's this whole there's a really strong tradition of workers' movements, but also just of like popular unrest, and so there's a lot more resistance. And so Macron is the kind of EU centrist politician who's kind of bringing this this program of austerity. And and I mean, even before the Gilets Jaunes protests happened, he was already becoming like hugely unpopular. He he barely has any mandate as a president. I mean, he was voted in probably because people didn't want the National Front, but actually people really didn't vote in that election. I think it's like 37% of people voted in the in the election because of just a kind of widespread disillusionment with party politics. Um, and there have been like several scandals this year that mean he's he's got like very little legitimacy, which, and then there's this like very strong street movement. So... And, um, it's and really interesting. Similar, I think, to what we've talked about on the show, the traditional parties in France, so the Socialist Party and the Republican Party, right, is the right party? Yeah, it's like of a Sarkozy. bipartisan, yeah. Right. Uh, those have, the, the center seems to have completely collapsed. So, um, you know, you had, um, was it La Marche, which was uh, Macron's party that he just threw together because the Socialist Party and the others had just been so, I don't know, um, so reviled by everybody over the last 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Le, le France en marche? Wait, La République en marche. Uh, God, I'm getting it completely wrong. Yeah, La République en marche. We um, have a French gentleman in the studio we might be hearing from a little bit later. Yeah, who <laughs> will remain anonymous. <laughs> and also will be helping us with uh, pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's like one of these parties that's pretending not to be, to be, uh, to not have any politics. And it's, you know, it's a business party, uh, you know, he kind of presents himself as having come from nowhere. Mm. Um, you know, he kind of, he, he went to like, he, he was uh, working in banking. And so it's, it's, it was quite a big new change for people. And a lot of people like voted for him because he was supposedly different or young or good looking. Apparently, some people found him really good looking. So sounds familiar. <laughs> sounds like you don't agree. I don't agree, and I never did. <laughs> Hell yeah! How about He's a little basic for my taste. <laughs> as gross. Well. I mean, I guess it's kind of cool, but also fucked up that he like seduced his teacher. When he was in high school and now he's like married to her. I that guess that some people think he's like OG pimp. Yeah, you don't know about that, babe? No, I, I don't know. Dude, that's fucking crazy. He, 
That's his it. teacher creeped on him or he creeped well, on his teacher? Well, uh, depending who you talk to. <laughs> Very We straight. don't want to make him any cooler than... He, All, I mean, also, he's we don't want to get drowned. We don't want to get drowned in Macron yeah. uh, either. So, so. Uh, so we're, we're talking about the, the party the party issues and what leads up yeah. to the... Oh, I was going to say, um, like, Sean and Matt, I think, in our last History is a Weapon sort of laid out the history of this phenomenon in French politics where someone comes in who sells himself. I mean, it's always a man so far who sells himself as an outsider, but is actually just a continuation of the same uh, bourgeois ideals, right? Like uh, you guys talked about Napoleon, how he came out and sold himself as yeah, an well, outsider. The, the argument was that there's there's been a series of synthetic figures, right? So they synthesize these different traditions within France. They rise as national leaders. So you have, of course, uh, Napoleon. You have the other Napoleon. And then you have uh, Charles de Gaulle, right? And, and so on and so forth. So that periodically, it seems like French politics throws up these people who are, yes, like from the outside that are supposed to kind of solve the problems and fix the contradictions through a kind of national you know, renewal program hmm, like a bourgeois revolution or something yes Con- yeah. like consistently like over and over again bourgeois the, revolutions. whatever i always get the title wrong brumaire of yeah. 18th brumaire 18th brumaire of napoleon bonaparte which i think we should touch on because when we get into the gilet jaune i mean it is largely a rural movement and a lot of what marx talks about in uh you know in the uh 18th brumaire is this sort of um i don't know disconnect between the countryside and the city so so uh, you talk a bit about the sort of apoliticalness of this uprising. A lot of people who are part of it describe it that way. Um, and it seems like very clearly political to us. So what do they mean when they say that? Is it just that it doesn't slot neatly into the sort of uh, traditional left-right political spectrum? Is it because it doesn't have anything to do with uh, bourgeois electoralism and that's how most people understand politics? Like, what's going on there? Um, yeah, no, I never said it was apolitical, but that's how it was, uh, how this movement was represented at the beginning. So, um, you know, uh, it was, like, written off by... It, it was... It, yeah, I mean, people in the media were saying it was apolitical, mm. but they were also say i mean there were also extreme right elements who are keen to claim certain certain parts of it at the beginning and i think the reason that there was a lot of confusion at the beginning is because first of all it centered around a kind of um well people thought it was a kind of anti-tax um anti-ecological measures movement so it seemed a bit right-wing and because of histories of like pujadism or um, the fact that the the right has kind of always been m- the people talking about like cars or whatever um, meant that it it seemed sort of right wing and at the same time these issues are like anti basically there's a lot of people in there who are kind of who or a lot of the yeah how to say it? the the movement is kind of like has an anti globalist bent which can really be right or left. That's one thing. There's a lot of people in the movement whose analysis of what's going on with these austerity measures would like circulate much more around a kind of financialization narrative. So that would be like the center right of the movement. People that I met um, when I went to some roundabouts who are really well versed in what happened to France when they 
uh, went off the gold standard and joined oh, wow. the global economy. And but their idea is that this is that they have a kind of nationalistic idea of this, which would be like that it that it was a betrayal of the French people. So their particular brand of anti-global politics might be quite right wing, whereas there are also like left wing, um, lots of left wing people in it. And so I think the reason that it seemed apolitical or pos possibly right wing at the beginning is because th there was a huge spectrum of different people involved and also because the unions initially were a little bit embarrassed by this movement which kind of appeared to be maybe right wing and they didn't quite get involved although lots of um well a few kind of left insurrection insurrectionist groups said that it was really important to get involved sorry that was a bit meandering yeah that makes oh, sense but and it, it's really clear in your article yellow vest diaries uh, because you have two main scenes uh one is of the demonstrations and riots in paris including a description of anti-fascists attacking fascists and I, I think that video kind of went, went viral in the united states as emblematic of the struggles going on uh within the the movement and then the second part is is you visiting this uh roadblock in, in uh rural france I forgot exactly where it was. It's in uh, the Was region. Uh huh. And that was seemed to be largely populated by overt racists and nationalists, right? So it it gives a pretty vivid account of of both sides of of the movement. And um, I guess in in describing it, we can see kind of uh, you know the drawbacks of that, the potentialities of that, and and you know where it's left us a few months later, right? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um maybe a problem with my article is is that it, it does do that thing and so it, and like like you say the movement's a lot about this idea of it's quite a french idea of the center and the periphery and there are really good things written about that that we can touch on but um i think that's it's in a way chance that i happened to go to a roundabout that was like you know had some kind of euroskeptic and sort of I mean, the guy that I spoke to most of the time, he he was kind of more like center right, and he wasn't. I don't think he. I would describe him as a fascist exactly. That was Pierre, the uh, ex-military. Yeah, guy. the ex-military. I think he's kind of like a kind of yeah center right, militaristic type. I mean, he's kind of who I'm talking about when I say that people want the French politicians to be hung for treason hmm. to to France. It's like a lot of these kind of national pride things. Um, I think that. Uh, I don't think that I think the problem with my article is it might set up the idea that in the city it's all cool uh cosmopolitan or metropolitan people who are like antifa which is I think Paris is really quite antifa or at least it's trying to fight that battle um and that in the countryside it's all a bunch of like creepy fascists I don't think that's true and I think there are loads of roundabouts which which are which have been like pretty left wing and where there have been big conflicts or or probably the most the most common experience or at least what I've read is that these roundabouts comprise loads of different people who basically make the decision to not talk about their differences on the roundabout and that's obviously a political position to have that you wouldn't chuck someone off because they're like racist but it, it's kind of what people were saying in the early part of the movement when they were coming up to Paris but like, I don't know, for example, some roundabouts that or the, some blockades which have been really interesting are like the Commercy one, which is like actually an occupation in front of their mayor's office where they, they tried to organize this thing called it. Well, they did organize an assembly of assemblies. So they tried to 
what experiment and work out some kind of like representative politics of the whole movement and they're really cool and then in San Nazaire where there's like a social center and there's some really interesting things going on I just wanted to say that I don't think I think my article might set up a false binary which is coincidental well yeah. what what I got from the article was that um, because this is a mass movement and it's a spontaneous movement uh, that spread wildly and is still around um, it seems like it's it's the working class in all its contradictions right it, it's it's this protest movement that 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 is not apolitical but it's able to transcend perhaps different tendencies that people might have all in sort of opposition to not just Macron but also of course uh, austerity and, and things of this sort is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think that, um, I think, yeah, I think that is fair. I think it's also not, it depends how you define a working class movement. I think that the things that are um, at stake in the movement are, are, yeah, definitely like things that are, you know, interests for working class people, like um, getting decent unemployment benefit, um, decent minimum wage, um, no homelessness policy, the fact that Macron would resign, like these are all things in, in like a working class interest, but it does also comprise quite a lot of, or it did at the beginning, I don't know now, but a lot of people that you would more describe as like petit bourgeois, so like small business owners, and a lot of the discourse at the beginning would be more, was more around pouvoir d'achat, so buying power. Mm. So that at the beginning, that seemed like more to do with something like, I don't know, like whether you can have extra money at the end of the month and very clear very quickly it became clear that people didn't weren't asking for you know like an extra car although why not but that they really were like in the red at the end of the month and a lot of demands tended to circulate around the idea that people were like starving or kind of polemical Mm -hmm. demands like that well i think part of why it's so confusing to people in the u.s is because like the idea that people could oppose austerity and have like racist or xenophobic sympathies is sort of unheard of here right like here we have the right which is basically a party of extreme extreme austerity and also racism and then the democrats which is you know the neoliberal center i guess which stands against racism in some ways and they're less they're less in favor of austerity depending who you ask Mm -hmm. but there's not um there's not a real, I mean, the left is pretty weak. There's not a real left alternative. It's like it maps less neatly in, in this country, I think. It's operating on a much, uh, many more levels of mediation from like whatever class conflict is happening. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I personally understand this movement as being a response to austerity, but I don't, I wouldn't be able to say that that's everyone who's in its understanding of what they're doing. Um, however, um, you know, in terms of French politics, uh, Macron is is a kind of is quite aggressively bringing these like um, austerity measures in. And when you look at how the FN tried to get votes in the last election, it was precisely by saying that they would kind of oppose the. EU um, orders for how to organize, you know, uh, trade and agriculture and work and stuff. And so they would, the, the FN actually would have... And that's the uh, Front National. The, front nas- part, the National yeah. Front, yeah. Like, so they would have more like protectionist programs. And I s- suppose like 
that when the FN National Front are trying to make victories, they often, um, you know, talk about things in terms of linking austerity to this EU, this kind of foreign influence, and then saying also that there's too many people coming to France, and so that there's this kind of focus on in the National Front on the on re-establishing an, a um, a nation state which would involve protected a protected workforce and actually perhaps like protection against austerity that's their rhetoric that happens in the uk as well like that's th- that's what brexit's about yeah, more money know? for nhs right that's what the part of the right wing ran on for brexit right i mean yeah the understanding is that i mean there's been the you know there was the 2008 crash so obviously you know that's something the eu dealt with all together and so the understanding is that these orders are like coming from somewhere else and so to like i say the idea of yeah, so there's there's quite a lot of you know xenophobic Frexit e people, mm. of course, but um, I suppose that's the thing about having an, a sort of things beginning with a single issue that can can include all kinds of positions. Yeah. So run us through. You know, you were on the ground for a lot of this. So run us through the dynamic that uh, you know takes this movement from from a, a call you know a call for a, a, a i don't know a single protest or a series of protests into a movement that uh covers the entirety of france and also gains momentum in this kind of wildcat spontaneous way what what is it about uh the gilet jaune what is it about the yellow vests that uh, allows this movement to to pop off when it does in the way that it does uh do you want me to do a quick chronology and then? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like I say, it started in response to Macron's um, announcement that he would raise the gas tax. And actually this video circulated online that was a petition against the da- gas tax and asked for people to organize. It seemed all very peaceful. People came out and blocked the roundabouts. And then the following weekend, it broke out in a riot on the Champs-Élysées. And since then... Um, these riots have pretty much continued, although not every Saturday has been a riot. And how it's worked is that there have been um, roundabout and payage, which is toll road, toll booths, like where you pay for the road, occupations, that was at the beginning. And that would be like continuing throughout the week. And then on the weekend, um, either people would go, you know, to their nearest big town or people would come up to Paris with Parisians as well. And there would be these kind of like, very ambling marches around very bourgeois districts of Paris. And so th- the 1st of December was the first of these really big... On the 24th of November, there was... Givenchy was looted and uh, I think Chanel as well and like loads of traffic lights were pulled down and burning cars and things like that. And then the 1st of December was just really an insurrection in Paris, completely unexpected and out of control. The 8th was a bit like that, but, you know, some of it was, it was the police, you know, there was a bit, lot of police in Paris and they did a good job of shutting it down. And then these things have continued. And, of course, there's been a lot of police repression. Um, it's difficult to predict what each Saturday will be like. Um, it, it's, 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 there's a lot of different factors, like, for example, since January. So whereas the protests at the beginning were not... Um, were not legal they weren't declared at the police station um now uh well since january sometimes they've been like declaring the route which makes things a lot calmer and very different although there's still a lot of tear gas and police violence um and so things were a little bit deader 
between January and uh, February and have begun, begun to pick up now. And then in terms of what makes things strong and able to continue, was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Because I think the media, not just here, but it seems like everywhere, has been saying over and over again, like, it's fi- yeah, it's finally mm. done, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that it's there's a regularity to it, so it's every Saturday, so every Saturday something will happen no matter what. Um, it doesn't involve... One of its strengths and one of its weaknesses is that it doesn't involve a strike, so people don't have to take time off work to go up for Saturday demonstrations, although... As a basically underemployed or unemployed person, I, f- I do find it really exhausting that my week is swinging between this Saturday <laughs> <laughs> rhythm. And I'm sure that a lot of people have that problem too. Um, so I think that allows it to keep going, although it means that well, everything is focused around Saturdays. And so one thing that could be better is like, you know, if you could have an effective blockade of things in the week, which is happening. So, for example, some things that are regularly going on. Like people have been organizing to block the port of Rangis near Paris. That's every Monday. People go at midnight, stay till six with the workers from that. It's a food logistics depot. Um, but a lot of the roundabouts kind of got kicked out. So a lot of the infrastructure has gone, but the Saturdays kind of keep mm. it going. So it's complicated. I think, you know, it could be more, but things reached this peak of violence like two weeks ago. So. Wow. And it's also that they're not, Macron isn't budging on most of the demands, right? Like where maybe somebody else might uh, give some more concessions. You talked about Macron going on TV and giving this word salad about how like the French subject just needs to be loved or whatever. Mm. Like, uh, I feel like normally these kinds of protests might act as a pressure valve to kind of resolve the tensions inherent within capitalism via some kind of reform or compromise. But um, Macron isn't doing a whole lot of that. Um, Do you think it's just that he's like uniquely an asshole or has capitalist development reached a point where it can no longer resolve these tensions to anyone's satisfaction and still continue the process of accumulation that it's built on? Um, I mean, I think he did make quite a lot of concessions like, he was, he's really unstrategic. Like, he's quite nul, you know? He's, like, he's not... Yeah, he's not so smart. I mean, he immediately, pretty much immediately, I can't remember which week, like, repealed the, the gas tax. So he was like, I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, you know, on that speech that you're talking about, he announced an increase in the, in the, minimum, in the minimum wage. Uh, of course, and his main problem, I think, in terms of, like, the reforms that he's announcing is that they're kind of too little too late he hasn't he didn't take the gilet jaune seriously like i mean i you mentioned louis bonaparte or like any of these kind of people he's really um he's really uh he's really arrogant and he comes off really badly and like somebody who doesn't understand anyone at all so i mean he's the kind of person there are videos of him like with somebody saying i can't you know a teenager saying i can't get a a job and and he's like just walk across the street and like ask in that shop he's very sort of he's very disagreeable and very authoritarian so people he doesn't come off well damn and also like if you can't get a job it doesn't matter if the minimum wage has gone up right <laughs> exactly yeah i was gonna say this so he, people were not very convinced by this this um this idea not only because they knew that raising the minimum wage would just be money coming from somewhere else that they'd be losing it somewhere else but also because 
um, the minimum wage functions on a, an hourly wage and a monthly wage. So the monthly wage is calculated on a 35-hour week of the hourly wage. But you can also have an hourly wage and only have like 10 hours a week. Mm. And so you're getting way less. And so that doesn't work out. Um, but also because I think that it's, yeah, I, th I think the movement like very quickly moved on to quite like more romantic ideas about what... Um, Yeah, I think that basically the movement like shifted quite quickly from being about a gas tax or about like these kind of things that can be done to being about, you know, people often say like we're starving or we want to live, not survive. And so there are these kind of ideas about like living way better than any parliamentary concessions could uh, could afford, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, so there are sectors of the left that distrust this movement, um, I guess. I say left, like, that's a very broad term. I mean, there are unions who distrust it because it's not organized. There are anti-capitalists who distrust it because of the presence of racists and fascists there. Um, I'm thinking about the students that you wrote about who didn't want to join for that reason. Um, also, some of the protesters have really cozy relationships with the police that made me uncomfortable reading about it. Uh, but there's also a case to be made that the way to shape it and change it is from the inside. And that is what a lot of people said as well, who you spoke to. So, yeah. Right. You talk about um, you were involved, I believe, uh, going into, you know, some of these big protests on the Saturdays and actually getting involved. So when we're talking about Antifa, we're not necessarily talking about the black bloc just going and randomly fighting police. We're talking about leftists, anti-capitalists who are entering into this movement alongside these folks, right? Fighting the fascists if they find them or trying to, you know, isolate the fascists, but also just trying to take part in this movement and its organization and, and talk to people and kind of uh, shift, shift the direction. Is, is that right? Um, no, I mean, I was talking about that. Those groups were um, Committee Dadama, who's a, that's a group that organizes against police violence in the, in the suburbs. And that's, um, run by, well, started by Asa Traoré, who's the sister of Adama Traoré, who's a man who was killed by police two years ago, uh, three, three, nearly three years ago. Um, them, the CLAC, which is this queer liberation group that you talked about, um, Sudrail, so like the, the train drivers union who are really radical. Um, and actually, when I say no, I just mean I was talking about specifically AFA, Banya, so like specific Antifa group. And of course, all those people are anti-fascist, but the the Antifas like need need to be there to like to be the the head of the the march right, for obvious right. reasons. Yeah. And have they done? A de I mean, I say they like there's someone leading the Gilets Jaunes, but have uh, working class people of color uh, integrated into the Gilets Jaunes at this point? Because I know it's often caricatured as a sort of a white working class movement. But I, I mean, it's caricatured like that, but uh, it's been caricatured like that since the beginning. And like, since the beginning, there have been working class people of color. And the point is, is that they, the, for example, the, the Committee Dadama were like one of the first people to say, uh, actually, like these austerity measures affect us as working class people of color in the suburbs more than, you know, of course we have to be there and we also have to be there to assert our presence. So yeah, but uh, I don't know how you integrate into the gilets jaunes. However, it's mm -hmm. it's um, it's just yeah. yeah I think that sounds a little too <laughs> orderly, right? I think you don't want to integrate as well. You maybe want to stay in your block and mm. somehow that but, is. But there's been a big shift 
in terms of like the more centrist elements of the movement who would have first said, you know, it's not our priority to be anti-racist or they would have said we're not racist rather than saying we're anti-racist, for example, like stuff positions mm. a bit like that, you know, in on the 16th of March actually like led a kind of rally with Asa Traore. So that's a big shift in terms of like the representat representative politics of it. That's that's so important. Like and what you said about staying in your block, right? We've had a lot of debates in the U.S. left and in DSA about um, what the meaning of a mass movement even is and about, quote unquote, finding the universal in the particular, you know, because there are people who say, oh, if you focus mostly on things that benefit everyone in the working class, the working class will automatically unite and recognize that they have these common interests, um, whereas I think maybe it might be more real realistic to think of the working class as something that is, we're coming to it as a very fragmented body. It's fragmented along many different lines of identity. It's very fragmented along lines of race. And um, maybe in order, we, we need to construct this new universalism out of uh, starting with the particular, right? Starting with where people are at and bringing them together, not into some kind of undifferentiated mass. I There's just feel like it's complicated and that's fine. And as long as people are actually like uh, ha are having very um, clear positions and making sure that, you know, and that means that physical fights on the street are necessary. It also means that a lot of conversations are necessary. A lot of like, you know, talking to each other. You know, there's a lot of people who have probably transformed a lot during this movement. Maybe they've gone further right. Maybe they've gone further left. You know, it's like that too. I don't mean to sound kind of liberal, but. My I think it's important. To it's all about just having a conversation. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's about a street fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my position on this has always been that uh, it is through self-activity and through self-organization and uh, discussions that are happening in the streets at the same time as you're actually confronting capital on the state that a movement becomes itself. It, it, it forms itself. So, you know, it's probably too early to tell where all these divisions will go, but um, I read an article. Uh, it was um, by a man named uh, Bernard Henri Levy, who is a public intellectual in France. I'd say he's like the Steven Pinker of France. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. And he, this fucking foppish dickhead, um, basically said, and, and there's a question about like media um, uh, representation of the Gilets Jaunes. He said that it is essentially a fascist movement. And he said that the, uh, the yellow vest is a uniform for terrorists, right? They are fascist terrorists on the streets. You also have this dynamic that I believe you talked about in your article where they do this in the U.S. and elsewhere, too. They're trying to break up the casseur, right, the, people, the breakers, the wreckers, the provocateurs from, you know, the good protesters. But it seems like that sort of narrative falls apart when you actually look at who's active in this struggle and the fact that, uh, you know, it's not just, quote unquote, the black bloc or whatever, who are smash, smashing up uh, Givenchy and tagging the uh, Arc de Triomphe and smashing up uh, the Champs-Élysées, right? I mean, I think there's been a shift in what people would ex accept. And of course, there's always like some degree of public, and I mean public inside the Gilets jaunes as well, like horror about property damage. But I think that it's been almost tangible in some of the demonstrations that people are less and less concerned with that and also that more and more people are chanting things against the police. Like the fact that I think in December when the Lycéens, that's the high school students, was facing a lot of 
police brutality, I think that kind of gained a lot of public support for them and a lot of kind of people who haven't necessarily had experiences with the police were really outraged. And there's also been a growing uh, growing uh, distaste for like the, the mainstream media as well because a lot of people are experiencing the street movement and are also seeing on popular TV channels that it's being completely misrepresented. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. can go in two different directions. I mean, people talking about fake news and stuff like that, but also making their own media platforms. And um, yeah, I... Uh, I'm shocked that the bourgeois press is not giving them a fair hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a really good Le Monde article about the day that uh, that I was talking about two weeks ago, that, which says in, it says in the article that people just applauded when everything was broken, not and nobody mm. was worried about it. Which is, you know, and usually on a left wing demonstration, there's always some, you know, often parts of the union will will uh, fight against the black bloc and there's different things like that. Mm. Oh no, the poor Starbucks windows. This is violence. It, we can't tolerate violence. Yeah. Stuff like that. Man, that reminds me of the uh, documentary that Sean and I watched earlier today about the woman, the working class single mom, mm. Ingrid, mm-hmm. uh, what's her name? Uh, I forget. Who was part of this. Uh, she was from Normandy, I believe. She was part of this movement um she wasn't i mean i guess she was political but she wasn't uh she never had like a strong leftist analysis of it and she's like oh violence is bad i want to bring i want to make change with love and then she decided to run for a seat for a membership uh mp in the european european union and also started some sort of non-profit and everyone turned against her and the the documentary was like oh isn't this a shame like she's just trying to w- make the world a better place like what's wrong with all these people like that's a narrative that i have seen yeah. floated in the media she was in this documentary she was shown as like the reasonable person who's trying to create electoral political representation for this movement is she in the gilets yeah, she she oh. began as one. I was so, not understanding where you're going <laughs> with that. So, and so the so the the the, the news broadcaster is absolutely yeah. shocked yeah. that uh, the gilets jaunes. I think I know who not... you mean, redhead. Yeah, yeah redhead. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They were shocked that they would not Thanks. that the the gilets jaunes would not accept her as a reasonable representative of their interests. Thank you. Uh, yeah. She had been there from the beginning, but uh, she got turned on. Uh, very much by the protesters once I she mean, started running. Well, for people office. don't want to be represented represented by another person who claims to represent them that they didn't. You know that that's for sure. But I mean, it's it's always. I think it's just really difficult to gauge what people's particular political persuasion is. And anyway, it's a question like, do you, is that how you measure a movement? Like I'm, I think that at the beginning there was a lot of stuff about like this is a really right wing movement. What did people break? They broke. They like burnt down police stations and toll roads, and you know, like God, that's like how people think that Fight Club was like a right wing movie because they blow up a credit card company. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but um, I think you have to find something in between. Like you know, I just think you got to have a kind of materialist analysis and also realize that there are definitely right wing people and people who are self-acknowledged neo-nazis you know and you absolutely can't have solidarity with them but they're in the same Mm. movement i mean it's just how it is i'm worried that the problem's a little bit deeper than that uh because because you know if there's just neo-nazis or pied noir or whatever and that's something you can fight but it seems like a lot of the motivation for why people were coming into paris and blocking roundabouts and stuff is they're in these Facebook groups where they're receiving tons of conspiracy theories and fake news and stuff that's 
designed to appeal to uh, anti-state, anti-authoritarian sensibilities, but it's really just Infowars stuff. Like, it aren't like anti-vaxxers a big part of the movement too? And you know, these people are not necessarily racist or right-wing or ideological or or right, but uh, it's a. I think it's a problem when the the base of the movement has that kind of conspiratorial worldview, right? I agree. Yeah, I think. Um... I think, yeah, the movement has an anti-system bias. Uh, as we know, that that can mean a lot of, of ideas about financialization and particularly focus on, like, circulation of money that are, like, structurally anti-Semitic ideas or focus around, for example, global elites and banking. So there's a lot of stuff about Macron because he, wor- he worked for the Rothschilds and so there's a lot of anti-Semitic stuff that excuses itself by that idea. But it's actually, I think, like you say... A lot of the ideas that the movement would be based on are possibly like structurally anti-Semitic. And there have been, I think this has shown itself in the last few months. I mean, I could say a bit about about that. But also people have been making, I think what the roundabouts, I think a lot of people kind of organized themselves into Facebook groups and were making their own media or circular, you know, it's almost like a whole generation of people who are like maybe 50 or 60 are suddenly joining Facebook <laughs> and circulating no, for real, like sharing videos that are going viral. Oh, I'm, I was laughing because we have boomers here that do that too. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, but like, you know, like people who, yeah. And then at the same time, there's people who've been in that game for a long time. So Alain Soral, uh, Vincent de la Pierre, who was Alain Soral's um, media strategist. And they're actually in there making, you know, the real news about the movement and trying to make gains. So our, Alain Soral, who's like a far-right anti-Semite, you know, has actually been sort of trying to appear as the reasonable media outlet and he's playing quite as he was or anyway i haven't really followed him for a while but he vincent de la pierre his kind of ex-strategist was playing quite a smart game of just pretending to like show the truth and they're also trying to make gains for more yeah i i agree though about that i don't know if that's clear i mean it also makes sense we were talking about this last we talk about this a lot these days i feel like um like the only at least in the u.s um the only really loud mainstream voices right now that are standing against globalization are coming from the right because the left is so weak. I mean, we had the anti-globalization WTO protests at sort of the dawn of most of our political consciousness. And then speak for it, yourself. It kind of it kind of <laughs> died. It kind of died out. And like, it makes sense if people are looking for an alternative to this kind of neoliberal global regime of austerity and outsourcing and deindustrialization and all that if the only alternative they've been presented with is coming from the right like that doesn't excuse it at all but like we really really need a left alternative to maybe uh maybe change some people's minds i mean sure i don't think that's what's happening in front like i don't think the right is providing anyone with any i don't think there's any clear ideas of anything Mm. to do that are coming out of either left or right and i think uh i think yeah i think it's very different to the states and and of course um of course it's it's true that like this anti-globo thing can go both ways but i'm i'm i i also i also think that like there yeah there've been a lot of specific problems with racism or anti-semitism in the in the movement and outside of the movement that we could maybe talk about like precisely but i do think that i think that um there has been quite an exciting internal fight in the Gilets Jaunes, and I think people really are like taking quite strong positions, and that it's impressive, you know. Yeah. So, compared to the beginning, so that's yeah, that's super interesting. Good. <laughs> Jamie, did you want to yes. ask a question about the opportunistic rat? 
I, I do. So that was a good turn of phrase. In I the would article. yes, Melanchon. So yeah. I would like to talk about uh, Papa Melanchon for a minute. Yeah. Um, so both the left and the right have tried and so far failed to co-opt this movement for purposes of electoral politics. Um, we know the right is bad. We want the right to fail. Um, let's talk about the left. Like we probably will have some people listening who think that it's sort of uh, naive or irrational of the Gilets Jaunes to resist any kind of co-optation or political representation in the electoral sphere because they think that that's the only thing that's really going to create change. That's the, they mm-hmm. think it's the only thing that has successfully created change in the past. Like, what, what are the potential pros and cons of any kind of um, electoral movement coming out of this? Um... I mean, I really hope that's not all that comes out of this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, one thing that people have been worried about is that the far right would co-opt uh, Macron if Macron is, like, completely ruined, that they would um, profit from that to get in in the European elections. But, um, yeah, I, I Mélenchon was trying to sort of, sort of run after it at the beginning and, the reason I'm not so keen on Mélenchon is because, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for an, for the reasons that any, yeah. I'm People just, seem oh. to think of him sort of positively in the in the U.S. left, or not the not the entire U.S. left, but like my DSA friends who maybe support Bernie with some kind of critical support would view Mélenchon in the same way. I mean, he's like, um, he's like a, he's a socialist i guess with probably policies that are maybe further left maybe they're further left than bernie's policies i don't know but in terms of his relationship to the center center of politics in france he's way less far left than bernie is in relation to like the idea that bernie would get in is like that's that's wild i think that's great yeah but the idea that melanchon would get in i see for it's France. France. He's like, like again, yeah. Uh, yeah. M- Mitterrand part two. Or and something. you know, I'm not the best person to talk about this, but certainly what my friends say is that Mélenchon spends his time constructing left parties for his own career and then he destroys them the minute the base gets too strong. Mm. So he's actually mm. a destructive... If you're into party politics, he's not even your guy, mm. I think. Also, he changed his uh, party name to France Insoumise. Yes, France Uncocked. We're familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, there's something a little bit chauvinist, yes. by which I mean nationalist, yes. mm. about his socialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah I th- wouldn't say anything too extreme there. He's not a fascist or anything. But He's an opportunistic know, rat. He's an opportunist <laughs> and he's appealing to... I, I think you only had to be in France during the elections and see the kind of people having like parties outside ro- waving these little squiggly signs to mm. be a bit like, feel a bit sick. They're like the hashtag resistance here. I, I've got no idea. They're like the... Uh, you're you're the, better off not the knowing. The boring, <laughs> uh, the radical liberals. I don't know. No, well, I, I just think he probably appeals to a lot of middle class people. I don't know if he... No, he probably appeals to working class people as well. I mean, I just... For example, he's the kind of person who will like call a demonstration for himself <laughs> on the same day as there's the annual demonstration in Paris... Um, for migrants and against police violence. That's a wow. Philly, Philly DSA state. shit. Yeah, and then you're seriously. just, you know, it's like, what a 
creep, really. You know. I'm loving the Mélenchon hate, but uh, <laughs> don't don't listen to our episode about France one year ago when we were a lot more <laughs> positive about him. That di- that didn't happen. Delete the episode. Uh, but yeah, I don't know the, what you're talking about. <laughs> in the last year, we must have all read a lot of uh, Lundi Matin and uh, <laughs> so that, That's why I wanted to ask: um, Do you think that Gilets Jaunes has changed the political landscape in France, where, where maybe? Um, you know, the same way the Socialist Party had collapsed in the last election, do you think the the legacy politics of uh, of the left, right, and center are all in some way being made irrelevant by the street movement? Yeah, definitely. Cool. <laughs> um, do, you, do you, I mean... It was uh, a yes or no question. You answered yeah, it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what? I guess I still want to know. I, I was what kidding. The, you can go what on. The, <laughs> what the cons are, why it's a bad idea for any uh, any political candidates or any kind of electoral energy to come out of this movement. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just think, I don't think it, I don't know what will happen. I don't think it will. I think this movement tends towards you know, probably the destruction of of uh, Macron. And there will obviously have to be some kind of, um, you know, reconstruction period after that. But uh, I think maybe a better thing, something interesting is this assembly of assemblies at Commerci that I talked about. Because in my understand limited understanding, you know, because I live in Paris and I w- attend as many things as I can and things like that. But um, at the beginning... You know, these assemblies that I went to were called by people who were not like in the rural movement, mostly, although there were people from the roundabouts and they were kind of to discuss like whether the left should get involved or not. And I understood these as like, you know, important, important meetings, but ones that tried to, uh, you know, use left organizing principles and traditions to try and figure out what was going on. And so some of what I'm trying to say is that at the beginning, you had people electing themselves as representatives, talking to politicians and like wishing to live stream it, saying that they were the true voice of this or that clearly wasn't true. Um, and then at the same time, the left kind of t- trying to make a kind of unified left position on the Gilets Jaunes. And all of this is there's no point even condemning it. It's just to say that it's like not. It, it's got a total like just doesn't it just doesn't join up with what the movement actually is. Whereas this Commerce Assembly tried to like tried to like actually work out what kind of politics could come out of this. So they tried to assemble all the demands that had been made over all the roundabouts, and they made a tally chart so you could see how much things came up. And I don't know if all the roundabouts put in their list of revendications, but you had things like 98% of roundabouts want Macron to demission, to like leave, and like 6% want to leave Europe. So you get more of an idea of the spectrum. And at the same time, people said that they were trying to figure out how to do this assembly, and people were saying, um, okay, we need to use like, you know, these these things to like organize these meetings. And apparently there were some women saying, no, 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 we can't. We, this is going to take 10 years. We need to like learn how to do this. This is completely new. So people are also, as well as, you know, really questioning the idea of a kind of traditional kind of representation, they're also trying to work out a new form of deciding things, That's which is interesting. Yeah. That and really reminds me of Occupy Wall Street in some ways. I mean, people want to talk shit about the ways in which it failed, but like 
I really like the idea of some sort of prefigurative politics where people figure out new ways of living and surviving as well as like making group decisions. And it seems like the issue with Occupy is it really did stay sort of a rather small group of diehard, crusty, uh, drum circle, smelly activists. Well, the people oh, who had time to sit in the park. Whatever, you know, all day, whatever. But, yeah. And did not become everyone and was very easy to sort of demonize and discredit in that way. And I would, Partly because we don't have as much of a tradition here as they do in France of everybody protesting. And I think honestly, partly because the police have guns here. Mm. The, the police have guns in France too. Oh, oh but, yeah. but the second somebody in, in New York, like going down, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue and throwing Molotovs and burning cars happen, they would just would have murked the fuck. Yeah, out they would have killed everyone. So yeah, and the Occupy uh, movement was probably the most salient for our uh, American listeners in the United States. But let's remember too that it was part of a kind of uh, global international uh, movement. Uh, you had the Indignados. You had the squares movement. You had in Greece these radical assemblies. And, of course, you had, too, the Arab Spring and Tahir Square and Gezi Park, which are all these sorts of, you know, prefigurative, almost temporary autonomous zone type uh, moments. And it seems like France has finally gotten that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's finally there. So do you think that first off, do you think that that's valid? Do you think there's a continuation of it? And secondly, do you think that there is something um, fruitful about this sort of prefigurative uh, sort of concept of political formation i i don't think it's like occupy i mean i don't think it's like this maybe like nuit debout which was during the work law movement was a bit was using the same kind of ideas of how to organize so occupying a public place like a square and having these kind of consensus decisions uh made but i don't think that's what's i i think that some of the you know the Obviously, on the roundabouts, people have had like individual general assemblies to decide what that particular roundabout would want as their demands and things like that. So sure. But I I really think that it's much more. I mean, I mentioned Commerci because that was a sort of attempt to do something like that. But I think the whole movement seems to me to be much more spontaneous and violent than that. I don't think there's I don't think it's focused around this like idea of people's assembly. I'm really sort of. I, I no, that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't have to map. I think we're just trying to think of a yeah, framework yeah, of, of something that we know and something that we have experienced. And I think the other thing that reminded me of Occupy was like that, just the actual camps and the ways that people were living and staying alive. Like it, it reminded me of Occupy, and it also reminded me of a camp I encountered in Cleveland at the RNC where they were just kind of sending every crusty person who showed up to protest who like probably didn't have anywhere to stay. They're like, oh, go camp in this park. And this park was, you know, mostly mostly leftists, but there were there were a couple of uh, conservatives there. There were libertarians, and they all kind of got along together living in this sort of idyllic park off by the highway not bougie people would not want to stay there and you can you they got away with it because nobody brought up the jq or lizard people i'm guessing and so oh, i mean sort of i don't know what happened after dark <laughs> yeah. i mean there was a lot of that stuff at occupy especially in in europe like I, at the london occupy there was a that was when around when we met it was super right. creepy wasn't it there was like a david ike section oh, yeah. by london yeah, yeah. yeah. and there, there was, was a, a lot of too. like anti-rothschilds like mm-hmm. adverts from the 30s with octopus 
Yeah. Yeah. There, that, um, kind of, that kind of stuff happened in the US too. Yeah. I'd say that's probably one connection is people being politicized rapidly and being kind of uh, seduced by these kind of ideas or something like that. And this like critique of system, you know. But I think, um, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm mostly in Paris, but I don't think there's, I don't think the camps have the same kind of feeling. Also, they're not, I mean, the one that I went to in my article was occupied. There are lots that have been occupied, but a lot are not occupied. They're just inhabited during daytime hours and people hand out like cake and block one in every three ca cars and have a chat. So there's a kind of, um, actually that's what's, what was really interesting about the two roundabouts that I talked about in the article that I wrote uh, was that the first one, there was a lot of time for discussion and there were a lot of different people, including a very left-wing guy who knew all these birds and was really great. Yeah. And then the military guy that I talked to and there was obviously a lot more space for like different people. And there were like lesbian trade unionists and then like right-wingers who'd been in the FN and then truckers who would stop and like, you know, people of color. And it wasn't, it was really weird. But then on the other roundabout, because it was just a blockade, occasion, and it wasn't even a blockade, it was just like block everyone in a few, few cars who are your neighbors anyway and have a chat and then have a chat with the police. They were like very didactic and wouldn't have a conversation at all. And so it was kind of like a, a soapbox, whereas the first roundabout had this kind of more horizontal, you know, there was more space for movement, which I thought was interesting. So, so you need occupations. <laughs> so as I understand it, uh, when we get up to today, this present moment, yeah. uh, Macron uh, has failed in all his attempts to put this down through the police. There's been massive violence by the police and against the police. I believe he's bringing out the military. Is that correct? For the first time since 1948 to uh, take the streets and uh, stop these protests. Yeah, he brought in the military um, last weekend. So on Saturday, the 20, what was it? The 23rd? Yeah. And um, two drones in Paris. Oof. And so the consequence was that many fewer people came out. I think it was something like 8,000 across the whole of France. Yeah. Um, and he's done that because the week before, uh, there was a kind of peak in in force and in violence. And although there were only about 20,000 people out in the Champs-Élysées in Paris, they were extremely effective. Two buildings burnt down, um, or burnt. I mean, I don't know if they actually burnt down. I wasn't there. Um, a luxury restaurant was completely smashed and looted. All, lots of shops were looted. Disney, Toomey, um, uh, Swarovski, Longchamp was burnt. Um, and there, it was completely like a failure of public order for like several hours. And so uh, that was sort of the final straw. And it's also because Macron had been spending January until now doing this thing called the Grand Débat, which is his um, his pretense to condescend to the people and the public. And he's been going around roundabouts, basically, the provinces, talking to people. And what's interesting about that is he's pretending to be like very sort of... Um, accessible as a leader but he actually sacked he he fired the committee that was set up to ensure fair debates between the public and politicians yeah. so now that the the military <laughs> is a listening out. tour <laughs> listening tour yeah uh now that the military is out in full force uh it seems like this movement might be at a kind of uh on a fork in the road i don't want to like larp on behalf of uh french protesters but i did see a video of a, uh, he, he was a POC gentleman, a gilet jaune. He was out on the streets, 
And when the reporter asked him uh, what was going to happen, he said, we're not going to stop. The police will not stop us. The military will not stop us. And if we have to finish this with guns, we'll finish it with guns. Yeah, people have been using that kind of rhetoric all the way through. And uh, I don't think anything's actually come of that yet. But that, you know, on the 1st of December, a police gun was stolen from the back of a police car. So that was that's an anecdote. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if the military, I wouldn't say the military's in full force, but anyway, it's a big symbolic and actual change that the military have now been called in. You could either think about it as, um, you know, uh, interesting, or you could think, oh no, it's going to be very much repressed. I don't know. But it definitely means something in the way that Macron has not managed to manage wow. the situation. And like, since I think since the first of December, the police unions themselves have been asking for the military to be t- to be called in. They're exhausted, and the overtime I heard is really uh, sapping the French state. All the police they've had to put on the streets. Yeah, and I think um, some people said, "Oh, it's the end of the Gilets Jaunes after the sixteenth of, of March." This really impressive day, because they said, "You know, where can we really go from there?" And the next step in people's minds was that Macron would. It would depend on how, how Macron responded. And so the fact that he's brought in the army, maybe it ups the ante. Um, And other people are saying, well, it's the beginning of spring. And famously in France, movements continue right through to the summer. Like like May in 68, for example. They follow like the school calendar. So they stop in July and then (laughs) they take up again. Wow. Do you think that there's going to be some kind of like violent confrontation with the state? Is that what this is? boiling to i mean that's what's been happening for 19 I mean, weeks i know but like <laughs> i guess like a uh you how mean do like I say a this? Like final a, like a like a credible attempt to overthrow the state that might actually succeed because okay i guess this ties into what else i was going to ask which is like um it seems like they're bringing things to a crisis point even just the amount of resources required for this army of cops that's putting down all of these protests means the government and the state is going to be strained. Um, and some people say, oh, well, that's counterproductive because, you know, uh, the state will eventually, it will always continue, capitalism will continue, and the consequences are always going to fall on the most vulnerable in the form of cuts to social services. And there are other people who think, hey, we really have a chance here. Like, let's go for the whole tamale. Mm. Yeah, I I really don't know. I'm not a very good I'm not very good at predicting what would happen next and I'm also not um I don't have that much faith faith in electoral po- politics or in in reforms. I mean, obviously whatever anyone can get that would make things better and make their lives less immiserated then that's cool. But do you have faith in revolution? <laughs> yeah, of course. It's the most But I don't question. know if it will I don't know if that can happen. All I know is that what's exciting for me about this movement is that it can seem to, seems to be able to stall things and so you know the limit to my own thinking is that I'm always thinking like in this kind of present tense of like oh this is just slowing everything down or speeding it up I don't know whatever way you want to look at it and yeah I don't know. It seems it seems to me that one possibility coming out of this uh, massive, spontaneous wildcat series of demonstrations is that uh, our conception of what quote unquote revolution means might have to change based on these circumstances. Um, do, will it look like a 20th century thing or, or a 19th century thing? Or 
are these series of blockades? Uh, are these attempts to unite, uh, you know, radical trade unionists uh, in the factories with the militant students and with, uh, you know, the rest of the gilets jaunes from the countryside, you know, to block the circulation of commodities and uh, basically shut shit down? Is that what is that a potential? Is that a, a new sort of almost going back to the syndicalist idea of like a mass general strike that brings down the government? Yeah. Like, uh, is this building to a social revolution? I mean, I kept thinking about, well, the thing is, I went to loads of general assemblies back in uh, December and I heard the frustration of the the workers from the base saying that the unions wouldn't call it this general strike and saying that that was what was needed, that you needed to stall the country uh, so that the far right couldn't get in in the elections. And I was completely convinced by this. And then I realized that that's a polemical demand from the base, that's totally fair enough that they make that demand. But there's not, you know, there's not necessarily proof that that would happen. And I think the problem is, is that like, whether the union's there or not, they tend to kind of, this, I don't mean the base at all. I mean that the union workers are great, but I just mean like the fact that there's a centralized union, you know, that's the problem. I think, well, I'm not being very clear, but I'm just saying maybe I was too quickly convinced by this idea because actually maybe, Maybe it is true that the gilet jaune is this like thing where there's economic blockades without necessarily workplace organizing. Mm. I think someone who's way more eloquent than than me on this is um, Alessi Delambria, who wrote uh, Full Ye- Full Metal Yellow Jacket, which is an amazing text, um, kind of autonomous text that talks about like the the absence of the factory or like the the end of the factory in all of this so the idea that there's kind of shifts in where um blockades when actually have, I, mean, I can't be that articulate yeah. on it well the problem with a strike is you have to go back to work at the end of it right <laughs> yeah like i was reading the gilles dove book and he oh god he describes it so well this evocative moment in this uh, documentary on um may 68 and some worker struggles that were happening and you know they got a bunch of concessions at this i think it was a garment factory the strike was over and this one woman was just inconsolable she was inconsolable she's like i'm not going back in there i'm not fucking going back and i'm like yeah that's how that's how i want everyone to feel that's like i want people to not go back yeah no i well i i'm also just i just also don't know whether a general strike Will it happen? I don't know. They said that they were going to do one on the 5th of February. It was really small. Well, Can it happen? Well, I don't we, know. I mean, we here in the United States, again, we see the, a general strike as this momentous occasion. But if you're in France or you're in Greece or elsewhere, general strikes happen all the time, and they're often symbolic. They'll say, we'll have a one-day general strike or a three-day general strike. I think for there to be the actual potential to shut shit down, uh, you would need it would potentially have to be a spontaneous or wildcat one because I don't the, obviously the the union leadership and bureaucracy has an interest you know in yeah. keeping things going just like in May sixty eight. Yeah, I suppose what I was just trying to say about how I was wrong was maybe I was wrong to put all to to, to say that that's what's absolutely needed. Like maybe that's not what's absolutely needed, and maybe it's impossible as well um, because the gilets jaunes have done like more like in their first 10 days or something like they did they did more than the unions had been trying to achieve for years in terms of making macron go back on some things you know so i don't mean macron but i mean like the establishment or whatever so yeah 
I don't know about Gilles Deleuze. I haven't read that because I fine. I won't read him because he's involved in negationism and yeah, mm. he's, he's got some problems. I have a little uh, I have a little boycott there, but fair, I ha- fair I enough. Could be. That, what you're to saying is totally those, great. Uh, but. Well, well, we're we're, <laughs> we're referring to um, eclipse and reemergence of the communist movement, yeah. and uh, is that later? We yeah, don't this is earlier. This is earlier. We don't have to deal with that in this episode. So um, I know you don't like to predict the future. Uh, I was going to ask you if you think this could spread internationally, um, but instead I'll ask what leftists in other countries can take from this in um, terms of our own uh, our own day-to-day praxis. Uh, yeah, I think I think every I think it's really specific what's going on in France, so I'm sure that this movement can't just be transferred. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a bit weak what I'm going to say, but just like do, do do everything all the time. Because I think that what's been really effective about the movement against the work law and the movement ag- um, against Macron right now with the yellow vests is, is like this kind of multiplicity of um, of things going on. So you need strikes and you also need walkouts and you also need high school students and you also need people smashing ATM, ATMs and you also need like a level of... Uh, anti-state like violence and property damage um so and we do yeah, not need go all out <laughs> yeah i mean sh- but obviously if you could uh, like i think it's really different in france because what's possible outside of or against electoral policy po- poli- politics is probably uh bigger than what's possible for example in the uk where i'm from because we have a much more weakened left and i don't think you could even really say that we have an we don't have an autonomous movement for example we just have this momentum thing which is like basically the whole of anyone who might have been far left has been absorbed into a social democracy project which is frankly kind of a tragedy so maybe the possibility of what's maybe what's possible on the streets in france outside of electoral politics or against it is is more than what's possible in the u.s and in the UK, so obviously it'd be great if you could get like yeah. Corbyn or Bernie in, you know. <laughs> That's well, a very reasonable <laughs> answer, yeah. honestly. It is, and um, just to close things out, Jamie had mentioned the uh, Gilles Dove book. Uh, uh, it's uh, Clips and Reemergence of the Communist Movement, and uh, we are re- rereading it because we're going to do an episode on uh, communization again with Swampside Chats. I'm reading it for the first time, yeah. full disclosure. Full disclosure, but... Um, Reading Gilles Dove, because I, I don't know if I've, I've gone like right revisionist over the years, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been, you know, pretty hyped on a lot of the social democratic shit that you're seeing in the U.S. and like this rise of socialism as broadly. But rereading that book, um, Dove reminds me that uh, the point of our movement, the point of communism, if we're going to call ourselves that, uh, is not merely to manage the crises of the economy uh, through politics. But it is actually at the end of the day, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, to destroy those abstractions of politics and the economy itself, right? These abstract things that dominate our lives. Uh, And it doesn't mean, again, that these piecemeal reforms are incorrect or that we should be judging people because they go into Momentum or DSA or any other group. Uh, Only that we need to pay attention to and include movements like the Gilets Jaunes and moments that we're seeing right now that may seem apolitical and Perhaps, I don't know, uh, think about that these might actually be the most advanced forms of working class self-activity that exists in this present moment. This moment when the productive forces are such that 
uh, we don't wouldn't have to go through an industrialization period to create communism. We would need to obviously reorganize a lot of shit. But like, if it feels like just in terms of like the material basis of the world, we are like over. We're we're pregnant with the possibilities of actually being able to create in an unmediated way uh, something beyond capitalism. And we can't take the gilets jaunes in all of their. Uh, weirdness and, uh, and and all of their spontaneity and quote unquote disorganization, and say they're not doing politics because ultimately, again, uh, we want to eliminate politics and uh, we want to destroy the economy in an abstract sense, of course. Sauter dessus quand ils sont dix à tabasser une femme et qu'elle n'a pas d'issue Et j'ai un truc à dire à tous les pacifistes S'ils le sont encore, c'est qu'ils sont pas vraiment dans les manifs J'ai vu le gars à côté de moi se prendre un flashball en pleine tête Je vois que le sang des gilets jaunes coulés, c'est bien ça qui m'embête Je vois tout le monde, je te débavé sur les banalisés Le peuple avec un manitou, casser les portes de l'Elysée Mais il y a aussi des flics déguisés, au matraque aiguisé Qui se font passer pour des casseurs et puis qu'attendent de te faire glisser Mais je vois aussi des gens faire demi-tour